this is Julia Torres here with the Book Love Podcast, and I am very excited today to be speaking with my dear friend, Sarah Zerwin, and her dear friend, Liz Rother. We are going to be talking about their books. We're going to be talking about writing. We're going to be talking about a lot of good things. So have a seat, get yourself something good to drink, relax and settle in. And we're going to talk about some ways to disrupt what you may think of as writing instruction. So the first question that I want to ask the two of you, maybe we should back up. Liz, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? And then Sarah, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm a Kentucky teacher. This is my 25th year in the classroom. Um, I teach at a, uh, a school for creative and performing arts in a large urban um, school in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, but I've taught a lot of different places within the Commonwealth. So um, yeah, that's me. And I'm Sarah Zerwin, and I'm also starting my 25th year in education this year. And I teach at a large traditional public high school in Boulder, Colorado, and um, have been there for 13 years and have taught um, just about everything you can imagine under the realm of language arts. But mostly seniors is what I've been doing lately. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. Um, It's always an honor for me to be able to learn from folks who are teaching in different environments and also who have taught for longer than I have, which both of you have. So thank you for um, your work, for your words, for the time that you put into writing these books to enrich other people's lives with your thinking and with your practice. Um, Question number one has to do with being writing teachers. And so I'm kind of going to weave these in conversationally, but I might periodically, you know, dive back into the questions and it might feel more like a formal interview. The first question is, as writing teachers, you both clearly have a passion for supporting student development with regard to creativity and self-expression. So how is this related to or separate from the language we are taught of standards, skills, and achievement? You know, I don't think there's an inherent conflict in the language that we use to talk about standards and skills. I mean, my my classroom creates a community standard, for example, within the first two weeks of class. And so there's expectations and standards and things that we want to achieve. And there are skills, obviously, that students want to uh, cultivate. Um, so I don't think the language of those two things are necessarily um, there's no tension there. But I think there, the language around achievement is problematic uh, in writing because we, we like to talk about mastery. And I think that is just a bridge too far. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, uh, Kelly Gallagher tweeted last week uh, th- that he was writing a, a paragraph for three hours. <laughs> you know, that he had he had uh, he tweeted that he'd only written the paragraph like 7000 times and the paragraph was worse 3 hours ago you know and here's a person who's written his whole life and you know i think about all of the writers who say that in regards to their writing uh, and myself included i think mastery is a lie uh, when we talk about students uh, achievement i absolutely agree with that liz and I think it's all the language that surrounds standards, skills, and achievement that gets in the way of writing instruction uh, because it it does suggest this mastery focus. And as you know, like if if we tell students your job is to master these skills, then once they've quote unquote mastered them in our class, they feel like they're done. But writing 
goes on. You know, every every different situation you're in that demands something new of you as a writer is a completely new ballgame. So um, mastery language is really, really problematic. And achievement, that whole conversation about achievement makes it all high stakes, too. And I think as soon as students realize or think that the writing that they're doing has any kinds of high stakes attached to it, then they're afraid to be creative. Their self-expression goes out the window. They don't take risks. They don't do all the things that writers need to do to be really successful writers. And then it gets it gets even more complex, right? Because everything we do in school has to have this system of measurement, which leads me to my next question, which is about evaluation. You know, what would you like for people to think about with regard to evaluation, given the fact that we just mentioned several things that are problematic about that label of achievement or mastery, which is implying that there's like a finish line when really we know that writing is this beautiful ongoing process. Yeah, I mean, I would say to teachers, evaluate writing as little as possible. And I know that that sounds really impossible to a lot of teachers, but or try to evaluate their process instead of the final product so that the emphasis is put on the process instead. Um, if you must use a rubric, because I know that sometimes we have to, like the rubric, don't make it a high stakes grade. I mean, the evaluation data that comes out of a rubric can certainly be helpful for student writers. Um, I mean, I would say throw the rubric out if you can, but if you can't, um, just use it as as data, as information, as a conversation piece, not as a like a final high stakes grade. Um, I teach AP Lit, and the AP rubrics are new this year and this past school year, and they're actually really pretty good. So I put them in front of my students to help them understand that task that they're going to be asked to do on the AP exam. But it's never a high stakes grade; it's just information for us and something for the students to talk about with each other to understand clearly what this task of writing is. Yeah, I think teachers have to make peace with the paradox of writing. You know, that I think what happens is that teachers, you know, there is both intention in writing and there's both spontaneity in writing. And there are rules in writing and there are no rules in writing. And so I think teachers come down on one side of that seesaw or another and they defend that territory and they evaluate that territory, maybe because they don't know how to evaluate the other side of that. Um but it's it's it becomes about the teacher then it becomes about their uh purposes and their intention and their direction for the student's writing instead of the student in my classroom my students create the rubrics so they have self-directed projects and so they create something we call an individual evaluation form and it comes out of the goals and the inquiry questions that they've used to support the project throughout the whole project cycle and so um, that evaluation is really authentic and it's really purposeful and it's really meaningful to kids just like Sarah's students who write the reflection letters, you know, for her um, um, no grade pro uh, process. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think I've always really enjoyed about Sarah was one of the first to get me interested in going gradeless in my classroom. And um, I heard her and Jay speak at NCTE. And one of the things that was that's difficult for me is that I'm in a high stakes environment. I'm in an environment where they don't really encourage people to do things that are, you know, unconventional or things that are, um, you know, not going to guarantee results the way that they are used to seeing results produced through writing, you know? So they, they really, in my environment, skew toward, okay, the district or big brother has produced this rubric 
we have decided that this is the rubric that everyone is going to use. So you need to use this too so that your stuff is consistent with what everyone else is doing. I was able to get away from that a little bit because I became an AP teacher. So I was teaching AP, which was like separate from the standard English 9, 10, 11, 12 classes that were kind of more uniform in the district. But, you know, in the current system, we've got to have some way of measuring achievement. And I know that you both have kind of more innovative or we might say non-traditional ways of coaching students and then getting that measurement for achievement. Um, and you have systems for measuring achievement. So how do you support your students knowing what their progression is? And then how do you communicate that with your larger school bodies? Well, I think, you know, you hit on like the test prep model, which is like big brother or, you know, high stakes in your district. And the test prep model is just so short sighted and it does absolutely nothing to cultivate critical thinking. I mean, we know this, right? We know right. as teachers and I think we need to do a better job of pushing back against administrators and you know, these and Pearson, you know, this, these giant, these giant educational monoliths who are determining what's best for our students and, and, and their own, their own journeys. And that's just, we just need to push back against that. And the way we do that is we defend our practice. The way we do that is we go into our classrooms and we shut our doors and we do what is best for them and how, I mean, I've been teaching for 25 years. I've never had an administrator say to me when I refuse to do test prep, um, you have to do this or you'll lose your job. <laughs> I mean, if I can demonstrate that my practice is just as effective and that my practice gets gets not only what they want from the student, right, but also beyond that, which is an actual writing practice and thinking and critical thinking and, and creativity and community and all of those things. Um, I think we are really short sighted if we limit ourselves to those models. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And Julia, when you sent this question to us, you said, um, how do you support students' use of systems for measuring growth? And I really loved that phrasing because we forget that the students really should be the most important users of our classroom assessment data. And when I started thinking about that, I started thinking completely differently about what kind of, of assessment data I needed in my classroom. Because in the end, I have my students write these stories about their about their journey as learners. And honestly, they're focusing on growth more than they're focusing on achievements. Um, Cause I asked them um, years ago. So if we're gonna do something different with grades what should your semester grade reflect? Your mastery and achievement or growth? And 100% they wanted it to focus on growth. And so that's what I've been focusing on with them. And so what I have them do is I, I boil down all of the classroom um, all of my curriculum expectations into a nice tight list of 10 goals that make sense to my students. And then I have them pick three and each kid traces their journey towards those three goals. And they don't just use the goal in my words, they put it into their own words and they write about where am I now and where do I want to be and what, I'm gonna, what am I gonna do to get there? And then they focus on those three goals and their journey toward those. And I have them reflect every week and they track, they track their learning in their writer's notebooks and they do all this stuff to get them super focused on the process rather than that end semester grade. And then at the end, they look back over all of that and all of the assessment data that I've collected on them and that they've helped me collect on them. And they write a story about their journey as learners. And in that story, they tell me what grade they think they should have. And it just puts it all on them and gives them the agency 
to be in charge of their own learning in my classroom. And the best test prep is solid reading and writing instruction. Amen. Yeah. Period. And that's the best practice that they need to do is read and write a lot, a lot, a lot. So I'm just trying to get focused on that and get the students focused on their own learning and their own journey. Yeah, test I love that. Yeah, test prep is just so disjointed. I mean, that's the thing that I see. There's no connection to the larger, richer world of, of thinking. Um, that's what is so disheartening about people who buy into it and why districts buy into these kind of, you know, delivery method, methods is beyond me. I don't understand it. It seems very reactive to me. It seems like, okay, we're panicking because we're not getting the results that we want. And what we've always done isn't working with this new group of students. So rather than thinking about how education has to evolve and the way that we are teaching students has to evolve, which is what I like so much about the two of you and your studies and your work, is that it is an evolutionary thinking about how we coach students to write. It's not so much you're reading this and then you're writing an argumentative or persuasive essay about it anymore. It's more, I want to learn these different genres of writing. And then what do I need to do as an individual writer to you know, sharpen my skills? What tools do I have at my disposal? And I love that. I wanted to talk a little bit here, Liz, about your book, um, Story Matters, because You know, Sarah, you were mentioning that students have to kind of like trace their journey to becoming writers. Well, in a way that is creative nonfiction or that is, you know, them writing the story of becoming writers. So, um, you know, we have this constant interplay, right, between argumentative and creative writing. And I've noticed that creative writing has fallen off drastically in schools in terms of what we are given time to do. Um, we're told that we need to focus on argumentative writing, at least in my environment, which again is one of the more restrictive, more high stakes environments. Um, so could you both speak a little bit about what you perceive to be that balance or interplay between time given for creative writing and time for argumentative writing and how folks who are in more restrictive environments can achieve better balance. I know Liz, you're at a, at a, an art school. So, um, you know, that makes sense for your students to be encouraged to do creative writing. Mine are definitely not. So, um, could you both speak a little bit to that? Yeah, so it goes back to the seesaw. It goes back to the paradox that, you know, it all writing is creative. If you're writing an argument or an analytical essay or a, a lab report, it's all creative. You are creating something that has not existed before. And so if we come down on the side of that seesaw and we say, you know, this is the analytical approach or this is the creative, this is the imaginative writing approach, then you cut your students out of all the 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 dishes on the buffet table, right? That they can use. So, and I know I'm mixing metaphors here, but. <laughs> I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. You know, I mean, like the Commonwealth of Kentucky, we were the first state in 2000 and whatever it was, 10 or whatever, to adopt Common Core. And it was because I think a lot of post-secondary educators were pushing back and saying, students are arriving here from high school and they don't know how to write an essay. You know, they don't know how to write an argumentative essay. They don't know how to write an analytical essay. Well, what was the response? Let's throw out personal narrative. Let's throw out the short story. Let's throw out poetry. Let's throw everything out and let's concentrate on argument. Well, you can't do that because everything is an argument. A movie is an argument. A poem is an argument. And so you can teach argumentative strategies with a poem as well as you can with an analytical essay. And so I don't know that, you know, we have to just be a lot broader with our definition of what that is, I think. 
I think the, the common core, like as it's set, asks us to teach argumentative, informative, and narrative writing. So it, that is there as a support for us to make the argument that we need more room for other types of writing. I think what often happens for English teachers is we start by thinking about what books we want to teach when we're thinking about curriculum. And then if the curriculum is super focused on the books we're teaching as units, then the writing is by default about the books. And then teachers go to literary analysis about the books as the main kind of writing that students do. And then before you know it, um, the only work that they're doing is that kind of work. I think there's room for so, so many other kinds of writing in our classes. And Liz, that's one reason why I love your book so much, because it really does um, give students so many options for writing, gives teachers vision and ideas for how they can make more space in their classrooms for more options for writing for their students. So on those lines, I would love to hear about if you can think of one or maybe a great success story from a student. What is something that a student told you or something that you witnessed that was just like an awesome experience with either of your approaches or both or combination? Well, I filled my book with these letters from my students because that for me is where it becomes so clear that the work I'm doing to step away from traditional grading in my classroom is working and matters. And so every time I read them, I think this is really important for me to be doing this. And I can tell you about one particular student there. And actually the, um, the lesson that she talked about was more about reading than about writing. But she, um, she wrote this the, in her letter about her story as a reader. And in her letter, she ended up asking or saying to me that she thought she should have a C in the class. But she wrote this really long, beautiful story about how she really became a reader. And it had to do with her group that she was sitting with and wanting to never disappoint them to not having had the reading done and how she started reading more in her life outside of school so she could have philosophical conversations with her dad. And it just was this beautiful letter that at the end she wrote something like, um, I used to have like nail polish and Netflix or something, and now I've got Eckhart Tolle and um, these other philosophers. And it just, by but giving her the space to to set that goal about herself as a reader and then to focus on her journey as a reader, she was able to see all of that. And had my grade book been focused on points, then uh, she probably would have ended up with the same grade, a C. She did choose not to do some of the work of the course or to finish some of the work of the course. And so I thought that the grade that she selected for herself was pretty right on. But a grade book that was just about points and numbers and all that, we would not have seen that beautiful journey that she went on as a, as a reader. And she might not have seen it either. I mean, the letter, she sounds like she has so much power um, in her own journey um, and her own, like where she's standing as a reader and heading forward. So that's stories like that are what really make me keep going. Cause what I'm doing is hard and it goes against what people expect me to be doing, but I will keep doing it because I get stories like that from my students. I imagine there's a lot of community at times. There's people who just don't understand what you want to do and they don't see the bigger picture. So there's that process of, you know, trying to explain to them that this, what this is and how it's going to be empowering for the students. But there's nothing like student voice to be able to explain 
exactly what you're doing. Liz, what about you? Yeah, well, in Sarah's letters, let me just say, the letters in Sarah's books are incredible examples of literacy narratives that use information and make an argument about what about what they should, you know, sh- what grade should I get? They're making an argument. They're making a claim and they're backing it up with this, this data, this information from their story, from their lives. And they're beautiful examples. They're great mentor text, actually. I think for me about success stories every year around October, I will get an email from a graduate who is now at college or a university or somewhere. And they will say, thank you for teaching us more than writing. Like, because writing is really about social intelligence. You know, it's really about how do I manage my time? How do I divide a large project into small chunks? How do I prioritize? How do I communicate? How do I read the room? Right. All of those things are necessary. And so those are the skills that kids are don't have a lot of times because they've never had an opportunity to practice in high school. And so when they get to college, that's really the currency in college. Those kinds Mm. of things are what makes the college experience. And that's what most kids learn their freshman year is how to navigate that. Well, if kids come to college, having already navigated that, that's what I think is a success. I love it. I love it. Well, I am very happy to have had this chance to talk with both of you today. Thank you so much for sharing your perspectives and your experience. I know new teachers especially are going to be very excited to pick up your books, Pointless and Story Matters, um, and Project-Based Writing, right? Yes. Um, So I know that we have some reading and studying and conversating that we can do about all of these things. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for both of you. Thank you, Julia. Really good to talk to you both.